E-commerce expansion myths blasted. Successful cross-border expansion help. Listen to the show to hear how one UK company is helping e-commerce sellers successfully expand into Europe and double their profits. Hosted by Andy Hooper of Global E-commerce Experts. Welcome to the e-commerce expander secrets. My name is Andy Hooper. I'm your host from Global E-commerce Experts, and we're here to successfully expand e-commerce sellers into Europe. And today's guest uh, is uh, someone we've been trying to go backwards and forwards uh, to get on on the podcast for a while, actually. Uh, so I'm, I'm amazed and really, really pleased that we've managed to get Michael on. Uh, so hello, Michael. Are you there? I am there. Yes. Hi, Andy. Fantastic. Hi. How are you doing, Michael? Um, thank you very much for joining us. Doing well. Thank you for having me. <clears throat> Fantastic. So uh, for, we're going to do a little intro to Michael in a, in a moment, and uh, then uh, we're going to get to know Michael a little bit better, a bit about his background, a bit about how he got into e-commerce, how into what role he's doing now, what the role he does now, the companies with, what that does, and then what he sees as, you know, the vision for e-commerce in the future, uh, which is really, really exciting. So, so Michael, why don't you give us a little intro um, to, to you, if that's okay? Sure. I mean, uh, I've been uh, involved in um, actually the, the supply chain, as you know, Andy, and um, I've yeah. been doing that since um, 1978 and wow. focusing on China only, which sounds a bit funny because China is a big place. So only is actually a lot of things. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so that's business wise, my background. Um, as far as personal is concerned, I uh, was born and grew up in Belgium, but then I uh, moved to Australia and um, ended up um, going to China for the first time in 1975 after I took some uh, uh, university courses in uh, modern and classical Chinese, Chinese philosophy, history, all that kind of thing. And, oh, wow. and as it turned out, it you know, at, all that was before Mao Zedong died in 1976. So a lot of people wondered why I, who has basically a focus on business, am interested in Chinese. And, and it was just curiosity. There was no obvious purpose. It turned out, if anything, I was a bit lucky that I had uh, chosen that. Well, actually, I, I'm going to, uh, what I'd like to know is a little bit more about that. So you, you, you started in Belgium. Where did you go to university? I went to uh, the Australian National University in Canberra, Australia. Okay. And is that where you ended up growing? You, you were born in Belgium, but did you grow up in, in, in Australia? Well, I was born in Belgium. I went to Australia when I was 15. My mother is Australian, and that's sort of the link there. Okay. That makes perfect sense. So you, you're in Cram, Cam, Canberra, easy for me to say. Uh, so you're doing your university there. So, so the Chinese thing then, you know, obviously, you've 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 chosen to do that, and as you say, you know, at the time people were thinking, "Well, why are you doing that?" Now, looking back from now, you're thinking, "Well, that was an obvious choice." Um, but what led you to go down to that route? Like, what was the decision-making process? Was it you just had an interest in it, so you just followed your interest, or was it you was thinking, "I can see this as an emerging economy, much far greater than it's going to be, and I see this is where I want to be." What was your thought process there? Well, I'd love to be able to say what you just said, you know, <laughs> having this great vision. 
But in fact, uh, when I was at university, I was, you know, I was an 18-year-old young guy. And the reason why I got interested in Chinese was much more basic because um, in my first year at university, I had one course missing. I had to fill in this one slot and I was hesitating between prehistory and modern Chinese. And then uh, all the friends I consulted unanimously told me that modern Chinese was a bad idea. <laughs> so, of course, I chose that. You chose it. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Excellent. I love that. So, so it was more. So, so you, you then started you, you doing the sort of Chinese you, part of your university and stuff. So what sparked the interest? Because something must have sparked an interest from that point on as you started going forwards. Was, can you remember something that sparked an interest that you thought, there's something here that I just really, I just really enjoy? Well, at the beginning, it was intellectual. You know, as, as I said, I, I was born in Belgium, and, and anybody in that part of the world speaks multiple languages. You know, Belgium yeah. has, as you know, two official national languages, just to yeah. make life easy. And, and you're right next door to a whole bunch of countries that speak different languages. So I, you know, I spoke uh, a couple of European languages, but they're all, you know, alphabet based. And I was very uh, curious about this Chinese approach to writing. Uh, that was my, my main interest. And, and the difference isn't just that, you know, China has some 30,000 characters in a dictionary. The difference is that our script, I discovered, is based on the ability to, um, you need to know the language in order to understand what you're reading. In other words, if you're reading a, uh, a text in, in English, you must speak English. Yep. But if you read a text in Chinese, you don't have to speak Mandarin. You could speak French or English, uh, as long as you understand how to interpret these characters. And I found that uh, fascinating. So that was the beginning of my effort. And um, and as I learned more about it, I got more involved in it. Yeah. It I had mean, no business context at the time. And then you said you went to China in 1975. Was that right? That is correct. Yes. And what was that? Was that holiday research? Was that uh, you? What, what did that look like? Yes. So it was uh, it was holiday, but in those days you couldn't get to China. You couldn't really, I mean, for me it was holiday and research in a way. It was a fascinating opportunity to go there, and the reason why I was able to go because you couldn't get visas in those days was that um, a friend of mine, um, very close friend of mine, his father was the ambassador of France in Beijing, so I got that invitation, and oh, wow. I was able to to go in oh wow okay fantastic so in 1975 you've you've had this amazing trip to china well, i'm presuming it was amazing um uh trip to china beijing did you just stay in beijing or did you go to other areas as well well i stayed in beijing i traveled from the south of china so i came into hong kong went across the border into shenzhen which was this you know two horse town you know tiny little hamlet not but like it is now well, now it's it's humongous. It's, it's ridiculous. Cheap. But yes. but at the time, it was the place where you crossed the border to catch the train 
into Guangzhou. So I went from there, traveled by train to Guangzhou, spent a night, and then went on the overnight train. I think it was 24 hour train ride from Guangzhou to Beijing. And then I spent uh, a lot of time in Beijing, which was incredible discovery. I mean, these were the days where people, you know, still dressed, um, you know, the way that you would imagine communist China uh, yeah. was dressing. But I also had the opportunity to go to um, different parts of China, Tianjin and, and Hebei. And, and I took a train ride to Siberia through Mongolia, Manchuria. Yep. Um, and so went to the USSR at the time, crossed the border, went there, and it, and it was a, a fascinating part of the trip. Oh, fantastic. My, um, uh, that Mongolia bit, my friends did, uh, they went from Russia on the Siberian Express, and then they did their honeymoon in Mongolia doing um, horseback riding. Um, nice. which was, was sounds amazing um anyway um okay so 1975 we've done that you, you you've come back from china what does the world look like for you after that well so a lot of people said to me what do you think is going to happen because you've seen china and, and of course when you see china for yourself it's very different than what you read about in books especially in those days totally agree. and yep. um and and so they asked me what i thought was going to happen and i said look in my view you know, when I was there, by the way, I was I went to the funeral of Zhou Enlai, who had passed wow. away just because I was in, in China for four months. And he had passed away when I was there. Yep. So I went to his uh, funeral. I incidentally had a broken leg. I forgot to mention that. So I was on crutches during the whole trip. Oh, and, no. just to complicate it. Yeah. And but but I, I guess I got a little bit of a political awareness uh, and a feeling about the place as a result of all these uh if you want adventures. And they asked yeah. me what did I think was going to happen. And I said, look, when inevitably Mao Zedong is going to die. And uh, when he dies, China's going to tip. It's going to either tip left or right. And if it tips uh, left, then it's going to get, it's going to close up even more, kind of what North Korea is a bit like today. Yep. But there's a good chance that it'll tip right, in which case um, China will open up. And so that was my point of view in 1976. <clears throat> well, which is essentially what then happened from then on, pretty much. Yeah, so Mao, Mao died in later in 76. And yep. indeed, then you had this whole gang of four thing and, and then Deng Xiaoping emerged and, and suddenly China opened up in, a, in an extraordinary way. It was interesting because didn't they have like, was it, I can't remember, it's like a 30-year plan. Or something along those lines of it's like the 30 year plan. And over those 30 years, we were going to essentially take bigger market share and everything. And they've sort of done everything they've done. And it's only in the last 10 years, everyone's really stood up and taken a huge amount of notice and gone, oh, they're doing too much. And they're like, we've been telling you we're going to do this for 30 years. Um, is there something like that? Is it, was it 30 years? Why have I got 30 years in my head anyway? Well, I, I mean, look, China has, you know, China is ruled by you know, a political system that provides them with long-term vision, you know, and uh, one of the things that they've got going for them is, is that, if you want. They typically have five-year plans, but they have, you know, a 50-year vision. And, um, you know, and one of the things that China wanted to do is to, um, is to pull itself by its bootstraps and, and emerge from 
the condition that they were in. And, you know, Chinese, especially Chinese intellectuals, have a strong feeling that it's they're just regaining their place in history. Because China, if you look back in the, you know, 18th century, I think China was the largest economy in the world. And, and they felt, you know, we should go back there. We should, yep. you know. So, so you had a bit of that going on. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Fantastic. So, so you, you've had this amazing trip. You're sort of intrigued by a little bit more. How, how did that get you to, you know, what was the sort of process from there to you know, where you are now, you know, the China Performance Group in its early stages when you first started, let's say? Well, you know, first of all, I had to finish university. You know, I hadn't, I was still in, in university. And then, then I went back to um, China um i i didn't go in 77 but i was back in 78 and that's when i um uh set up my company and i you know but it but it was very much an adventure and it was it was much more sort of go west young man and make sure you have a six gun with you than it was an intelligent plan with a predictable outcome. You know, in those days, there was there was no predictable outcome. Uh, the Chinese Cultural Revolution was just over um, in '76, and China was emerging slowly. And '78 was when I moved back, got um, started up my business, um, and developed. Um, it was a huge struggle at the beginning. Yeah, because again, because there was no predictability, there was no financing, all of the things we're used to. Communication is a key component, Andy, of, of the supply chain. Totally. And, yep. And communication in those days, from a technology point of view, was ridiculous. You you used a, this thing that you guys probably don't know about called a telex to yeah. communicate. And yeah. then you, you know, and then things progressed and started to go to, you know, facts and then eventually this weird thing called email, you know, and, and suddenly life became much easier. Uh, but, but in the early days, it was very much a, a shot in the dark. It was for me, it was an adventure. You know, I'm going to do this. There's a very good chance that I won't survive, but it's worth trying. I, I love that. I love that. So, so I mean, how easy was it to set up a business in China at that point? Not easy at all. Uh, in fact, I, I set it up in Hong Kong okay. and, yep. and, and opened my office in China. So you could do that as a liaison office. And there were, I mean, you, you could pretty much count American companies on the fingers of two hands that did that. Uh, yeah. Very, very few. Um, no purpose, really. Most people, you know, didn't think there was a good reason to do it. Plus, as you know, and many of your, many of the people that follow you are startups, you know, the first thing that startups need is money. And so you find investors, banks, you know, lenders, whatever. For me, it was, if I, you know, I went to banks and they said, you want to do what? Uh, forget that. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then, the Chinese banks, because I approached them too. I said, hey, benefits you, you know, I'm, I'm going to be involved in trade. And Chinese banks said, nope, we don't lend to foreigners. What are you, crazy? It doesn't yeah, work yeah. that way. Nice. So, so it was very much you had, to, you had to make it happen on your own. And that was a great part of the uncertainty. So what was the, what was the initial business plan then? 
you know, or the initial idea? You know, I know you said you, you're going for a journey and see what happens, but what was the initial sort of, okay, these are the three things or whatever it is. These are what we want to do. And this is what I really want to set up and make happen. What was that original business plan look like? Well, okay. So at the time I thought, you got to remember in terms of context that Taiwan and South Korea were the places to be for importers, especially American importers. America was a big focus for me because, you know, America had the buying power that neither Europe, strangely enough, nor Australia had. I mean, yeah. Europe, yes, but Europe was, as you know, uh, you know, it's all these individual countries and therefore the yeah. purchasing power was, was limited yeah. in that sense. So America yeah. was my focus and, Taiwan and South Korea were the competitors, if you want. And I was convinced that China could produce certain products for the yep. Chinese market um, significantly at a significantly lower cost than yep. Taiwan and South Korea. Yeah, which which obviously we now know is definitely true. Yeah, um, but in, in those days, it was not obvious at all. No. And, and you had two problems in terms of first... The Chinese government had decided to open. That was in my favor. Yeah, they centralized everything, which, in a way, in the early days, was also a favorable thing. But um, they had no idea of costs and profitability, so their focus was foreign exchange. They wanted to export in order to get dollars, so that they could buy stuff. Okay, which makes perfect sense. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. And so, so you've started this off. Obviously, it's been going you know, very successfully for you know, a significant number of years. You know, over that period, obviously, China has changed massively, is my is my my guess. Um, obviously, I hadn't been the first time I went was 2015. And, you know, my recollection, and that's obviously significantly after you know, when you arrived and you know, we went to visit some factories <laughs> And we, we penciled some factories to go and see in Shenzhen. And I'm thinking, well, that's okay. We'll just go from one to the other to the other. And that all seems like a very good idea when you realize that Shenzhen is about the size of the UK. And it's like going from one side of the UK to the other between factories, which was a slight, and it's probably not quite the size of the UK, but it's probably not far off. Wow. definitely. Um, uh, and, you know, over that, you know, when I was there, you know, and I've been back a couple of times since, you know, what I've seen is, you know, things are adapting and changing and building. And, you know, what, what's been that biggest difference, you think, in that period from sort of then to now? Well, Andy, the biggest difference was that um, when I started, you had to convince the factories that they could do it literally you'd come up with you know we would have fairly basic merchandise like for example rubber boots and you'd go to a factory that made rubber boots and you said look you can change it make it for the u.s market you just have to change this change that make that better and then you can do it and the factory yeah. said nah we don't don't think we can do it and you, you had to convince them yeah now if you're a buyer and people you know chinese factories know that you're in china okay put aside covid yeah. Um, they would bang on your door and try to, you know, work, make you work with them. So that the yeah. attitude of of the vendor, if you want, was very different. And that was partially because in 78, 
you were, you know, China was still pretty much a communist country, and the vendors were were basically state-owned enterprise. The factory manager didn't have a stake in in what you were doing. You know, he didn't care. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, ninety plus percent of close to ninety nine percent of factories that sell, including I'm sure the ones you visited in Shenzhen, are owned by private people. And of course, private people are motivated. They want to sell. They want you to be as as a buyer. They want you to be happy, and they want you to come back. Yeah, totally. but not in those days. Yeah, yeah, yeah that makes perfect sense. So, so talking through over the years, you know, obviously the yeah, you know, I, I guess that. You know, you've sort of tweaked the things as you've gone, but what is, what do you guys focus on solely now? What's your sole focus as you know, the China Performance Group? What is it that that you perform and how you support um, you know, people? Well, that's um, so. There was a transformation at the beginning. We the only way we could make ends meet is to really be a trading company, and that's because yeah. China had no credibility. So we would say, look. We can get you these boots for twenty percent less than you're currently buying them, and people say, "Uh huh, you know, tell me another one," you know, and we say, "Fine, yeah, do a contract, and we'll deliver." And so we would make, as a trading company, we would make a margin on the real cost and what we sold the boots for. Um, and in that sense, we were obligated to deliver. And if there was a problem with the product, you know, we owned it. Um, and so. That was the initial business model. But then China started to rapidly become flavor of the month for importers. A lot of importers became aware uh, in the late 70s of China's opportunities. And I'm talking about people that are very savvy importers, not the -the run-of-the-mill companies. And, And they came into China and started to erode, if you want, those margins that I refer to. Yes. So... Uh, we said to our clients, tell you what, we're not going to sell to you anymore. What we're going to do is we're going to help you buy. And that's what uh, China Performance Group became. It's it's a a service enterprise that helps our clients buy better in China. And and the reason why this makes a lot of sense, Andy, is because all of these companies, they needed... um, you know, feet on the ground, they needed eyes in the factory, they wanted to control the process of sourcing, of supply chain, if you want. And um, and when, when we were a trading company selling a product, you're kind of limited to that product. You can't very well say to a buyer, I'm selling you rubber boots and tomorrow I'm going to sell you toothbrushes because I'm an expert in that too. Yeah. Um, we are very much product agnostics today in the sense that it doesn't matter what product goes through the China Performance Group system. Our expertise is to help our clients buy it and make sure it gets there in terms of of, uh, quality assurance and and on-time delivery. So the, the whole process is what we developed a very early expertise on and we fine-tuned over the years because I, I think that's that's really key isn't it that you know there's lots of people that are sourcing in china you know they never even go to they go to alibaba they source some stuff but but and, and that's you know, if you want a product that you want to dip your toe in and try to market you know you, you might be lucky and that might be okay um 
But the reality is, is that you, as a brand and a brand owner, you need to have a relationship with the factory that's going to give you that ability to one, you know, the QC part is absolutely critical um, and have the factory know that you're taking this seriously. The factory now want to know that you're a serious buyer they're, or, you know, they're, they're not, they don't want the small buyers. They want the serious buyers. And I think that makes a lot of difference. I think a lot of you, know, when we talk to sellers, the, the the key thing from them is about you're working with the factory, getting the factory to understand what they're doing, getting them to buy into what they're doing. But I think that boots on the ground thing is absolutely critical. Um, and people want to know that, you know, their stock, you know, their, their inheritance, their children's inheritance is essentially being looked after because, you know, all too often we get stock arrive here and, you know, they come into our warehouse and there's a unit missing or it don't quite look right. And you can tell the difference between a smaller seller and an established brand because the established brand typically never has any issues whatsoever. And if they do, it's a very, very random one that is you know, for whatever reason. On the other hand, if you've got a much smaller seller who's bought on Alibaba and chancing their luck, they come through and they're just all over the place. What's your experience with those sort of things? Have you have you seen similar? Well, yeah, very much so. I think you put your finger on it, Andy. The um, a small buyer has a much bigger challenge in you know getting what they want, getting respect, if you want, from Chinese factories for the simple reason that they're small. It's, you know, if your name is Walmart and you walk in there, they're going to give you the best price, the best service, you know, the best red carpet they can find and uh, make sure that you are going to actually place your orders in that particular factory. Um, but not everybody's name is Walmart. And, yeah. and the problem or the challenge, if you want, for the small buyer is a competitive one. Uh, they need to, you know, they have an e-commerce platform. They promise to sell this product. They need to have inventory. That inventory has to conform in terms of quality and performance um, with what they promise. And, and one of the key elements is price. Because if you make a very successful item and suddenly sales are going through the roof, you can be sure that somebody's going to want to copy you and make it cheaper in China. If you can't do it yourself, um, yeah. they're going to outflank you, as it were. So it's it's very important. You're right that some people can go in China. They can be lucky. They can place an order. They can get the merchandise on time. But a lot of it has to do with repetitivity. You know, how can you repeat that? How can you scale that? Uh, and if you start to move into scale, you can't leave the issue of quality assurance and on-time delivery to chance. You've got to control it. Yep. And that's when you need to have, again, feet on the ground and you need to have savvy people looking after the process yeah fantastic okay and so supply chain at the moment um is probably one of the most difficult things uh, uh that, that's happening you know with you know cruise cruise ships uh container ships getting stock out of china you know it's basically since covid january last year let's say you're know, getting stock into the states or europe has been painful um whether it's um container ships stuck across the suez canal whether it's covid whether it's not enough containers in the right place whatever it is right. there all seems to be a massive issue right now 
where you you crystal ball next three to six months, you know, from a Chinese you from a China based perspective, how do you see that playing out? Do you see that that's going to ease and it's going to be easier? And you know, I'm hearing that there's you know, electric outages in in parts of China right now, and actually displays you you that just adds to the issues. Um, and I'm hearing that third hand, so I don't know whether that's case or not. But you know, there's all of these things. You know, what's your crystal ball for that right now? Well, first of all, what you said is 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 all correct, and of course, uh, you know, the supply chain, that concept, supply chain, has suddenly become a big kind of newsworthy item in the media. Uh, in the last couple of months, uh, whereas before, you know, nobody really knew what that meant. But, um, and you are correct that, you know, the cost of containers has, has gone through the roof. It's, it's, it's ridiculous right now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so if you, look at, if you look at the supply chain from China's point of view, you need to be mindful of um, the dynamics uh, that drive this uh, this environment and the dynamics in china are driven partially by what i call a um, a covid effect so which is i think what drives the rest of the world all the problems that we have including for example in the uk with truck drivers yeah <laughs> all that's yeah. all that's linked to this covid effect and 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 so is you know the lack of supply of containers but um but that's not going to last it may take I don't know if I don't know if the the price of containers is going to drop back to its pre-COVID level. That's for sure. How long will it take? Difficult to tell. I don't think it'll be six months. I think it might be more in the in the one-year horizon. Now, the second element, Andy, is competitiveness. You know, a lot of people are saying, "What the heck?" You know, especially in America because you have this tariff situation going. Yeah. You know, I'm going to move my supply chain elsewhere. But um, but the problem with elsewhere is that they're challenged too. You know, you know, South Vietnam. I'm sorry, Vietnam in the south has all sorts of issues in terms of delivery, also related to to COVID right now. Um, and and the other thing that a lot of people are not very much aware of is that China kept a lid on labor prices for decades uh, because of their seemingly inexhaustible supply of manpower. And that's come to an end. You know, the cost of labor in China is going up. Um, but the rest of, the, of Southeast Asia kind of heaved a sigh of relief when this happened because, because if they wanted to be competitive, they had to keep their labor costs down. And, and so now the whole world, if you want, is, is becoming more expensive in that sense. Yes. Or they have to be more productive. In other words, they can, they can make... They should make more stuff with the same amount of labor, which China is is starting to become much better at. Yeah. But um, so long term, I you know crystal balls are difficult to find these days. But yeah. long term, I, I think within six months, China is going to continue to deliver as a uh, you know, the, the the factory of the world type thing, uh, yeah. and they'll get back into their stride within. I would say 12 months in terms of uh, um, cost of uh, shipping and, and containers. Yeah, that's interesting. Because that, that whole piece is probably the biggest headache a lot of our sellers are facing right now. That whole, you know, as you say, containers are through the roof. I mean, it's bonkers. Absolute crazy. 
Um, but it is as it, it is what it is. I mean, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, so it's a case yeah. of deal with it and move on. Uh, unfortunately, I know that's pretty tough for some people to hear. Um, but that, well, that's well, of course, I mean, you have you also have problems like even if you get good ship shipments that leave on time, they arrive in places like Oakland, and you they can't get unloaded. You know, they get stuck there for weeks and people can't, yeah. people are not used to that, Andy, as you know. Uh, we, we're used to just in time and that kind of mentality, but people had to adjust a bit. And I think well, that's, that's there's a huge amount of that adjusting. Uh, I, I think that's really, really key. So, okay. All right. Look, so we're, we're coming up sort of near the end, I guess. But I think from a, you know, if you was to talk to your perfect you know, client, what would they look like and what would they get? Well, we don't, you know, we don't have per se a perfect client. A perfect a client for us is somebody who needs to, who needs support um, yeah. in the China supply chain. In other words, yeah. somebody who buys something of value, like you said, and I like your, your, your illustration, they put their inheritance into that. Because when you buy merchandise, you take a risk. You know, you got to sell it in order to make money. And um, and a lot of companies focus a huge amount of their energy on, on the selling side of the supply chain, which I think is a role that your company um, does very well. I mean, especially for U.S. companies, the notion that you can double your business by going to Europe is fantastic. You know, you keep the same concept, the same product. And suddenly yeah. you've got this access to this new market. It's 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 a brilliant idea. But you got to get the product, and you got to get that product seamlessly, ideally without any recalls, without any quality problems, and ideally on time, and also in the right quantity, which is linked to time. Because you know, the, yeah, from order placement to delivery, you know, that's a concern as well. So all that has to do with controlling the supply chain. And if you've got people that help you, people with expertise that make that happen, suddenly that concern uh, goes away. And what we provide, Andy, is, is that missing element that a lot of companies have. They're well-equipped in terms of sales. They've got a very good marketing department. They've got good product, product development. But supply chain management, eh, it's the necessary evil. You know, the red-headed stepchild. You don't want to deal with it. But you need to deal with it. And, yeah. and we become that for a lot of our clients. So, and whereabouts are you based, Michael? We're based in New Jersey, but our biggest office is in Beijing. Okay, fantastic. Uh, and when was the last time you went? December 2019. Yeah. I used to go there, Andy, 13 times a year on average. Yeah. It's... And suddenly I'm on holiday. Yeah. It's bonkers, <laughs> isn't it? Well, um, it's it's you know times are changing as uh, Bob Dylan. Do you, do you think you'll get back out there soon? What's the what's the state of play? Do you think there? Well, you know, it's the thing is it's very iffy and it's kind of interesting. It's very iffy because uh, my main office is in Beijing, and Beijing is the most protected city in China in terms of COVID. I don't know if you noticed, but you know when the U.S. Um, big delegations visit visited China recently, they didn't go to Beijing. They met in Tianjin because they tried to protect the, the capital from any COVID interference. But uh, my, I have a very good and strong and team in Beijing, luckily, and they, they frankly don't need me to run things there. Uh, we have developed, uh, you know, 
obviously an interactive process through you know zoom that type of uh, meeting where we keep our organization together from a management point of view but um, they don't need me there and you know I participate in s some important meetings also via zoom and I find it very comfortable yep. you know instead of spending 13 and a half hour on an airplane to go there yes uh, suddenly you know, <laughs> yeah. life is life is easy so when can I get back I don't know it, a thing to watch Andy would be the Olympic Games in February think about it it's in Beijing and it's not going to be three guys coming in it's going to be tens of thousands of people coming in it's going to be interesting to see how they deal with that and if they deal with it successfully I think China is going to open up you know right now a lot of people don't want to go like me because you don't want to be stuck in a hotel for two weeks and no. that type of thing it's just not feasible is it I mean, yeah. I mean I totally understand why they're doing it um but it's just not feasible for the yeah, average you know, two weeks in a hotel I mean I can't spend a day in a hotel let alone two weeks exactly um, time is time is money and none especially executives the kind of people that go to China they do not have the time you know no. No, and quite often, I mean, I've been in China for 24 hours on flying back. You know, I'll spend more time on the plane than I have on the ground. Um, you know, that's just how it is. You know, but you've, you've got to adapt and, you know, it's just not possible sometimes. So, okay. Well, and, and I've done exactly that as well. I spent literally more time in the air than, than on the ground yeah. in China. And one of the things we do, Andy, you know, we're dealing with, you know, you're dealing with business owners who want to see the factories. They want to see what, again, they put their money into yeah. it. And one of the things we offer them is, look, you normally plan seven days. We can get you the same result in three days or in four days. Yes. And that's because we're there. we set it up for you. You know, we speak Chinese, we, we handle it, and we follow through after you're gone. And those people love that. They save three days. You know, it's great. Or, you know, and now you tell them you're going to spend two weeks in a hotel. I don't think so. And I think that makes a massive difference, that ability to be able to get into China, you know, have a whole load of things already booked, organized, structured. It just makes sense. You know, you're getting in a diddy and sure sharing a, you know, cause I've done it. You're getting in a diddy and say a taxi for those. Yeah. And you, you, you point in and sort of saying, I'm going to go to here and you get dropped in this random place and you have no idea if you're even in the, the right vicinity. And I love that. But um, I love that adventure. Like what you were saying, Michael, you know, well, I just went to China for an adventure. I mean, I, that's all me. But for a lot of people, that's just not an acceptable way of doing business um, or, or, or starting or doing anything. But anyway, okay, look, um, we have gone way over time. Uh, it's, been, it's been super interesting. I could go on and on and on and ask a whole load more questions. Uh, Michael, if people want to get in contact with you, they're interested in sourcing in China. They need some support in China. They need that support and help. You know, which you're perfectly placed to support them with that supply chain piece in China. How do they get in contact with you guys? Well, I guess the best way is to uh, get on our website, um, which will guide you, uh, will guide uh, potentially interested parties. If you're looking at this, wherever you are, it will be below. It'll be a link in there, uh, you know, whether it's on on Facebook or whether it's on the podcast, it'll be in the uh, in the description below. So you will be able to find it. But if Great. you Google China Performance Group, you know. Yeah, you should be able to find us with that as well. Yeah, I hope. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm going to have something to say to Google. Uh, yeah, I've, I've just done it just to make sure. But yes, that's exactly. I don't know whether it's remembered my cookies or not. But in, in essence, if you Google China Performance Group, you're going to be having it. It's perfect. Yeah, um, I think so. Okay. I think so. Fantastic. Andy. Uh, Michael. 
Um, it's been amazing having you on. It's been great to hear a little bit about your story and about how you got involved and, and how you got to where you are today. Thank you for your time. Um, any last messages for anyone that might be listening uh, to, to sort of warm them to you any, in any way? No, no, I, I just wanted to thank you. Uh, I find it very interesting to, to talk with you. I love what you guys do. And, um, and I wish you and, and all your clients uh, very well. If they need anything, they know where to find us. But in the meantime, I wish you great continuing success, Andy. Fantastic. And, uh, and us to you guys as well. I think that's amazing. So thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, that has been another exciting e-commerce expander secrets podcast. Uh, whilst it's not European based, it's about getting stock to Europe from China and about sourcing. Absolutely crucial for anyone expanding, being able to get stock where they need it, when they need it is absolutely critical. So thank you very much. Uh, this was Andy from Global E-Commerce Experts, here to successfully expand e-commerce brands into Europe. Thanks for your time. Take care, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks, Michael. Have a great day. Thanks, Cheers. Andy. Bye. Bye-bye.